Section 7 of Chapter 24 of History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 24, Section 7. The land tax bill, with this clause tacked to it, was carried to the upper house. The peers complained, and not without reason, of this mode of proceeding. It may, they said, be very proper that commissioners should be appointed by act of Parliament to take account of the forfeited property in Ireland, but they should be appointed by a separate act. Then we should be able to make amendments, to ask for conferences, to give and receive explanations. The land tax bill we cannot amend. We may indeed reject it, but we cannot reject it without shaking public credit, without leaving the kingdom defenceless, without raising a mutiny in the navy. The Lords yielded, but not without a protest which was signed by some strong Whigs and some strong Tories. The King was even more displeased than the Peers. This commission, he said, in one of his private letters, will give plenty of trouble next winter. It did indeed give more trouble than he at all anticipated, and brought the nation nearer than it has ever since been to the verge of another revolution. And now the supplies had been voted. The spring was brightening and blooming into summer. The lords and squires were sick of London, and the king was sick of England. On the fourth day of May he prorogued the houses with a speech very different from the speeches with which he had been in the habit of dismissing the preceding Parliament. He uttered not one word of thanks or praise. He expressed a hope that, when they should meet again, they would make effectual provision for the public safety. I wish, these were his concluding words, no mischief may happen in the meantime. The gentlemen who thronged the bar withdrew in wrath, and as they could not take immediate vengeance, laid up his reproaches in their hearts against the beginning of the next session. The houses had broken up, but there was still much to be done before the king could set out for Lou. He did not yet perceive that the true way to escape from his difficulties was to form an entirely new ministry possessing the confidence of the majority which had, in the late session, been found so unmanageable. But some partial changes he could not help making. The recent votes of the Commons forced him seriously to consider the state of the Board of Admiralty. It was impossible that Orford could continue to preside at that board and be at the same time treasurer of the navy. He was offered his option. His own wish was to keep the treasurership, which was both the more lucrative and the more secure of his two places. But it was so strongly represented to him that he would disgrace himself by giving up great power for the sake of gains which, rich and childless as he was, ought to have been beneath his consideration that he determined to remain at the Admiralty. He seems to have thought that the sacrifice which he had made entitled him to govern despotically the department at which he had been persuaded to remain. But he soon found that the king was determined to keep in his own hands the power of appointing and removing the junior lords. One of these lords, especially, the first commissioner, hated, and was bent on ejecting, Sir George Rook, who was member of Parliament for Portsmouth. Rook was a brave and skilful officer, and had therefore, though a Tory in politics, been suffered to keep his place during the ascendancy of the Whig junto. Orford now complained to the king that Rook had been in correspondence with the factious opposition which had given so much trouble, and had lent the weight of his professional and official authority to the accusations which had been brought against the naval administration. The king spoke to Rook, who declared that Orford had been misinformed. I have a great respect for my lord, and on proper occasions I have not failed to express it in public. There have certainly been abuses at the Admiralty which I am unable to defend. When those abuses have been the subject of debate in the House of Commons, I have sate silent. But whenever any personal attack has been made on my lord, I have done him the best service that I could. William was satisfied, and thought that Orford should have been satisfied too. 
that that haughty and perverse nature could be content with nothing but absolute dominion. He tendered his resignation, and could not be induced to retract it. He said that he could be of no use. It would be easy to supply his place, and his successors should have his best wishes. He then retired to the country, where, as was reported and may easily be believed, he vented his ill-humour in furious invectives against the king. The treasurership of the navy was given to the speaker Littleton. The Earl of Bridgewater, a nobleman of very fair character and of some experience in business, became First Lord of the Admiralty. Other changes were made at the same time. There had during some time been really no Lord President of the Council. Leeds, indeed, was still called Lord President, and as such took precedence of dukes of older creation, but he had not performed any of the duties of his office since the prosecution instituted against him by the Commons in 1695 had been suddenly stopped by an event which made the evidence of his guilt at once legally defective and morally complete. It seems strange that a statesman of eminent ability, who had been twice Prime Minister, should have wished to hold, by so ignominious a tenure, a place which can have had no attraction for him but the salary. To that salary, however, Leeds had clung year after year, and he now relinquished it with a very bad grace. He was succeeded by Pembroke, and the privy seal which Pembroke laid down was put into the hands of a peer of recent creation, Viscount Lonsdale. Lonsdale had been distinguished in the House of Commons as Sir John Lothar, and had held high office, but had quitted public life in weariness and disgust, and had passed several years in retirement at his hereditary seat in Cumberland. He had planted forests round his house, and had employed Verio to decorate the interior with gorgeous frescoes which represented the gods at their banquet of Ambrosia. Very reluctantly, and only in compliance with the earnest and almost angry importunity of the king, Lonsdale consented to leave his magnificent retreat, and again to encounter the vexations of public life. Tremble resigned the secretaryship of state, and the seals which he had held were given to Jersey, who was succeeded at Paris by the Earl of Manchester. It is to be remarked that the new privy seal and the new secretary of state were moderate Tories. The king had probably hoped that, by calling them to his councils, he should conciliate the opposition. But the device proved unsuccessful, and soon it appeared that the old practice of filling the chief offices of state with men taken from various parties, and hostile to one another, or at least unconnected with one another, was altogether unsuited to the new state of affairs, and that, since the commons had become possessed of supreme power, the only way to prevent them from abusing that power, with boundless folly and violence, was to entrust the government to a ministry which enjoyed their confidence. While William was making these changes in the great offices of state, a change in which he took a still deeper interest was taking place in his own household. He had labored in vain during many months to keep the peace between Portland and Albemarle. Albemarle, indeed, was all courtesy, good humor, and submission, but Portland would not be conciliated. Even to foreign ministers he railed at his rival and complained of his master. The whole court was divided between the competitors, but divided very unequally. The majority took the side of Albemarle, whose manners were popular and whose power was evidently growing. Portland's few adherents were persons who, like him, had already made their fortunes, and who did not therefore think it worth their while to transfer their homage to a new patron. One of these persons tried to enlist Pryor in Portland's faction, but with very little success. "'Excuse me,' said the poet, "'if I follow your example and my lord's. My lord is a model to us all, and you have imitated him to good purpose. He retires with half a million. You have large grants, a lucrative employment in Holland, a fine house. I have nothing of the kind. A court is like those fashionable churches into which we have looked at Paris. Those who have received the benediction are instantly away to the opera house or the wood of Boulogne.' Those who have not received the benediction are pressing and elbowing each other to get near the altar. 
you and my lord have got your blessing and are quite right to take yourselves off with it i have not been blessed and must fight my way up as well as i can prior's wit was his own but his worldly wisdom was common to him with multitudes and the crowd of those who wanted to be lords of the bedchamber rangers of parks and lieutenants of counties neglected portland and tried to ingratiate themselves with Albemarle. by one person however portland was still assiduously courted and that person was the king nothing was admitted which could soothe an irritated mind sometimes william argued expostulated and implored during two hours together but he found the comrade of his youth an altered man unreasonable obstinate and disrespectful even before the public eye the prussian minister an observant and impartial witness declared that his hair had more than once stood on end to see the rude discourtesy with which the servant repelled the gracious advances of the master over and over william invited his old friend to take the long-accustomed seat in his royal coach that seat which prince george himself had never been permitted to invade and the invitation was over and over declined in a way which would have been thought uncivil even between equals a sovereign could not without a culpable sacrifice of his personal dignity persist longer in such a contest portland was permitted to withdraw from the palace to Hengis, as to a common friend, William announced the separation in a letter which shows how deeply his feelings had been wounded. I cannot tell you what I have suffered. I have done on my side everything that I could do to satisfy him, but it was decreed that a blind jealousy should make him regardless of everything that ought to have been dear to him. To Portland himself the king wrote in language still more touching. I hope that you will oblige me in one thing— keep your key of office i shall not consider you as bound to any attendance but i beg you to let me see you as often as possible that will be a great mitigation of the distress which you have caused me for after all that has passed i cannot help loving you tenderly thus portland retired to enjoy at his ease immense estates scattered over half the shires of england and a hoard of ready money such it was said as no other private man in europe possessed his fortune still continued to grow for though after the fashion of his countrymen he laid out large sums on the interior decorations of his houses on his gardens and on his aviaries his other expenses were regulated with strict frugality his repose was however during some years not uninterrupted he had been trusted with such grave secrets and employed in such high missions that his assistance was still frequently necessary to the government and that assistance was given not as formally with the ardour of a devoted friend but with the exactness of a conscientious servant he still continued to receive letters from William, letters no longer indeed overflowing with kindness, but always indicative of perfect confidence and esteem. The chief subject of those letters was the question which had been for a time settled in the previous autumn at Loo, and which had been reopened in the spring by the death of the electoral prince of Bavaria. As soon as that event was known at Paris, Louis directed Tayard to sound William as to a new treaty. The first thought which occurred to William was that it might be possible to put the elector of Bavaria in his son's place but the suggestion was coldly received at versailles and not without reason if indeed the young francis joseph had lived to succeed charles and had then died a minor without issue the case would have been very different then the elector would have been actually administering the government of the spanish monarchy and supported by france england and the united provinces might without much difficulty have continued to rule as king the empire which he had begun to rule as regent he would have had also not indeed a right but something which to the vulgar would have looked like a right to be his son's heir now he was altogether unconnected with spain no more reason could be given for selecting him to the catholic king than for selecting the margrave of biden or the grand duke of tuscany something was said about victor amadeus of savoy and something about the king of portugal but to both there were insurmountable objections 
It seemed, therefore, that the only choice was between a French prince and an Austrian prince, and William learned, with agreeable surprise, that Louis might possibly be induced to suffer the younger archduke to be king of Spain and the Indies. It was intimated at the same time that the House of Bourbon would expect, in return for so great a concession to the rival House of Habsburg, greater advantages than had been thought sufficient when the Dauphin consented to waive his claims in favour of a candidate whose elevation could cause no jealousies. What Louis demanded, in addition to the portion formerly assigned to France, was the Milanese. With the Milanese he proposed to buy Lorraine from its duke. To the Duke of Lorraine this arrangement would have been beneficial, and to the people of Lorraine more beneficial still. They were, and had long been, in a singularly unhappy situation. Louis domineered over them as if they had been his subjects, and troubled himself as little about their happiness as if they had been his enemies. Since he exercised as absolute a power over them as over the Normans and Burgundians, it was desirable that he should have as great an interest in their welfare as in the welfare of the Normans and Burgundians. On the basis proposed by France, William was willing to negotiate, and when, in June 1699, he left Kensington to pass the summer at Loo, the terms of the treaty known as the Second Treaty of Partition were very nearly adjusted. The great object now was to obtain the consent of the emperor. That consent, it should seem, ought to have been readily and even eagerly given. Had it been given, it might perhaps have saved Christendom from a war of eleven years. But the policy of Austria was, at that time, strangely dilatory and irresolute. It was in vain that William and Hengius represented the importance of every hour. The emperor's ministers go on dawdling, so the king wrote to Hengius, not because there is any difficulty about the matter, not because they mean to reject the terms, but solely because they are people who can make up their minds to nothing. While the negotiation at Vienna was thus drawn out into endless length, evil tidings came from Madrid. Spain and her king had long been sunk so low that it seemed impossible for him to sink lower. Yet the political maladies of the monarchy and the physical maladies of the monarch went on growing and exhibited every day some new and frightful symptom. Since the death of the Bavarian prince, the court had been divided between the Austrian faction, of which the queen and the leading ministers Oropesa and Melga were the chiefs, and the French faction, of which the most important member was Cardinal Portocarrero, Archbishop of Toledo. At length an event which, as far as can now be judged, was not the effect of a deeply meditated plan, and was altogether unconnected with the disputes about the succession, gave the advantage to the adherents of France. The government, having committed the great error of undertaking to supply Madrid with food, committed the still greater error of neglecting to perform what it had undertaken. The price of bread doubled, complaints were made to the magistrates, and were heard with the indolent apathy characteristic of the Spanish administration from the highest to the lowest grade. Then the populace rose, attacked the house of Oropesa, poured by thousands into the great court of the palace, and insisted on seeing the king. The queen appeared in a balcony and told the rioters that his majesty was asleep. Then the multitude set up a roar of fury. "'It is false! We do not believe you! We will see him!' "'He has slept too long,' said one threatening voice, "'and it is high time that he should wake.' The queen retired weeping, and the wretched being on whose dominions the sun never set tottered to the window, bowed as he had never bowed before, muttered some gracious promises, waved a handkerchief in the air, bowed again, and withdrew. Oropesa, afraid of being torn to pieces, retired to his country seat. Melgar made some show of resistance, garrisoned his house, and menaced the rabble with a shower of grenades, but was soon forced to go after Oropesa, and the supreme power passed to Portocarrero. End of section 7. Recording by Jen Raimundo.